for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Today, the podcast returns to its roots, and we're looking at the intersection of diet and health and lifestyle and health. My guests are Dr. Benny Gavi and Maya Elon, and they have just come out with a book called Preventing Prostate Cancer, Reduce Your Risk with Simple Proactive Choices. And I love how sort of simple and honest and non-hypey this book is. They go into hundreds of different scientific research studies, and they provide practical solutions, all plant-based. Well, I mean, you know, exercise isn't plant-based or not, but, you know, just looking at the basics of what a healthy lifestyle is as it relates to prostate cancer. And in the conversation, it's interesting because uh, Dr. Gavi has been in practice for, for many years and Maya Elon, his um, sort of you know research right hand, um, is in med school now. So we talked about sort of the history of medical education when it comes to things like lifestyle, when it comes to things like prevention, rather than uh, pharmaceutical-driven treatment or or surgery-based approaches, how things have changed, how they're changing, how Maya alone, with all her knowledge, manages to make it through every day, all the classes without jumping on top of the desk and uh, screaming, I can't take it anymore. Um, And just what they see the future of medicine is, medicine in general and lifestyle medicine in particular. So it's a fun conversation. Um, Just a little bit of a warning. At the beginning, we hadn't quite figured out Maya's mic, and she's soft, but stick with it. Uh, It's audible. I've boosted her audio as much as I can in post, as we say. And by the second half, we've trained her to hold up the the little earbud Mike to uh, to her mouth, and then she's plenty loud. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I'll see you on the other side. Without further ado, Benny Gavi, MD, and Maya Elon, MD to be, <laughs> welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Excellent, excellent. So yeah, we're going to talk about um, your book, Preventing Prostate Cancer: Reduce Your Risk with Simple Proactive Choices. And it's got a lot of research, a lot of science, um, a, a lot of hands-on, you know, sort of simple, okay, I can do this stuff. Um, before we get into it, let's, let's talk about why you guys put, because it's a, it's a thin book, it's not a long read, but I imagine it was a long write. <laughs> a long research and write. So I'm curious, um, you know, the origins of why what made you want to do this? Because even before you started, you must have known this is a slog. Yes. Uh, you know, this is something um, that's been on my radar for probably three to five years before we actually put pen to paper. In my medical practice, I worked with several men who were struggling with uh, prostate disease. And I was struck by how um, difficult that condition is. In, in medical school, uh we're taught that prostate cancer is common. Uh, about one out of eight men develops prostate cancer, but it's not necessarily, thankfully, it's not uh, commonly fatal. About one out of 40 men die of prostate cancer. Uh, but I think what we're not informed is the burden of the disease for the one out of eight men. First, uh, just the stress of knowing that somebody may have cancer. That's obviously difficult. So there's repeated testing around that. There may be biopsies, which are obviously painful, risky, difficult. And when prostate cancer is treated, the treatment can have some really difficult side effects that men may not um, share with other people, but they include um, difficulty with urination, uh, bladder control, difficult with sexual function, difficult with bowel movements, because the prostate gland um, is, is in the part of the body where there's a lot of important other organs like the bladder and the bowel and nerve function. Um, treatment of prostate cancer can, can really affect the nearby organs um, in, in, in a location that's obviously very sensitive for people around their sexual function um, and, and things like that. And so, um, and then not to mention, um, reducing people's testosterone levels, sense of well-being, 
energy level, uh, libido, uh, similar types of uh, systemic side effects. And so I was really struck by how much people were suffering with this condition and um, how little they talked about it as well. Uh, it wasn't as apparent from people from the outside. So around that time, I started um, looking at uh, lifestyle issues and I was really struck by the magnitude of the science. It was really profound. It was very surprising as someone who was a doctor for 15 to 20 years at that point at great institutions, Harvard and Stanford. I was surprised that I, I actually knew very little about the um, huge impact of uh, lifestyle on prostate cancer. And it began with also looking at um, twin studies, looking at identical twins and saying, you know, when identical twins who have the same genetic material are followed over a period of time, um, 10, 20, 30 years, only about 50% of the twins will get prostate cancer. And, and even though the genetic material is identical, which suggests that the genes account for perhaps 50%, but not 100%. Mm -hmm. And so what is that, what is that other 50%? Perhaps part of its chance, but it also could be environment. And um, I began looking at studies, looking at environment and um, saw how powerful the, um, the, the data was. And I had the impulse to say, somebody needs to write this book <laughs> and I, uh, somebody needs to tell this message. And, and, and the background for the book was really to have the data speak for itself this is not a kind of, well, this is what I did and now I feel better, or this is what I saw one or two people or five people do. This is really um, letting the studies speak for themselves and uh, for kind of us to get out of the way. And so uh, the idea w was to, Maya and I um, pulled about a hundred studies and I'll let Maya talk about that as well because she was really instrumental to the details of that. but. The idea was to pull these uh, hundred studies and really uh, make them accessible, available, and for us to kind of get out of the way and let the studies speak for themselves. Uh, the other piece of it is that, um, you know, the studies are done by really talented researchers in really prestigious institutions. Um, and um, we wanted their story to be available in, in a more accessible way. So, so that's kind of the background um, for the story. Yeah, so that's great. So, so and you, you went to Harvard Medical School. Um, which, yes, which, I was. Uh, which, yeah. Yeah, which I've heard of. Um, <laughs> and so, so I guess, I'm curious, Maya, you're in medical school right now, right? Currently, yes. What, what year? Second year. <clears throat> so what, so let's, let's talk like, um, you know, Benny, 15, 20 years ago, maybe that's changed. What are you learning these days? What, you know, about prostate cancer? Mm -hmm. Right. So we touched prostate cancer briefly in medical school, but like Dr. Gavi was mentioning, a lot of it is focused on um, treatment once you have prostate cancer, as opposed to prevention of getting prostate cancer in the first place. And that's kind of where our research lies in, in changing your lifestyle. So you don't get prostate cancer in the first place. And there's so much evidence to support that that's just really not talked about in medical school. Right. Um, so so when you go to the lecture, area. yeah, so when you go to the prostate cancer lecture, also I don't know if there's a way for you to raise the volume of your microphone oh. somehow. You're, com you're coming in Sorry. a little soft. Um, I, I, can, I can do stuff in post, but it's always better to have okay. more, more to work with. Okay, I'll, I'll speak a little louder if that's okay. That yeah, that's great. Okay. Thanks. Um, so, like, you walk in, the lecture is called like Prostate Cancer One Hundred and One, and they say, okay, like twelve percent of twelve and a half percent of men are going to get prostate cancer. Let's talk about how to treat it. And they really don't talk about right, etiology yeah, much at all. Um, we will briefly mention it. We won't go into the depth that, like, for example, Dr. Gavi just talked about with the twin studies and having, you know, only half of your risk be heritable. We might talk about a few genes um, that are associated with prostate cancer, like increased risk. Uh, we might talk about presentation, classic signs and symptoms. But yeah, prevention is just really not a discussion that's had. And 
there is such a, a need for it. There's such a space for it, especially with prostate cancer, which is so heavily, pro mm -hmm. uh, you can reduce your risk so significantly with simple, simple lifestyle uh -huh. changes. Okay. So, so Dr. Gavi, when he learned, was sitting there, a sponge, a good student, taking it all in. You're sitting there knowing that there's a whole story not being told. How are you behaving in class? <laughs> you can best believe that I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> I definitely push my classmates to, to learn about this topic and to like question what we're learning in school. Um, I've spoken to a lot of, uh, a lot about my peers in the urology groups, um, just about how we can integrate prevention more into our curriculum. And it is something, it's a way that medicine is shifting. It is being integrated more and more. I'm not, I'm not sure I wasn't in medical school 20 years ago, but I know that there are steps being taken to, to mm. increase prevention discussions, but conversations like this are, are, you know, the basis of that. Right. So one of the things I've been seeing a lot over the last couple of years since the pandemic really took hold is a lot of people in, in, in our community, sort of lifestyle, medicine, plant-based nutrition, um, have kind of gone nuts on a lot of other things because their, their, their view is, well, if they're lying to us about that or if they're eliding all this information they, they're withholding things or they don't know then they but what do i trust at all so i'm curious uh, benny whether you know if you say like they're now integrating prevention into medical education like are they are they integrating evidence into medical education like what's the gap between all these studies that you guys have compiled and analyzed and the practice of medical education I think that's a great question. And I think if we really understood that answer to that question, I think healthcare would be at a different place today. And actually, American health would be at a different place. So I think you really asked a, a really important question. Why is there a gap between what we know and what we practice? And I think that's a really difficult, um, it's, a, it's a really difficult to know. Um, I do think that in the medical school front, because I'm also a faculty member, there's just so much to teach around how to diagnose prostate cancer, the, the various blood tests, how to examine the prostate, what's a normal prostate, what are the various signs, signs of prostate issues. And, and so I think the curriculum is already jam-packed with information. Uh, I, I do think that um, when it comes to lifestyle, it's hard to know. I don't know if because we don't have a big pharmaceutical industry behind it, kind of pushing and promoting it. Um, it's hard to know. Um, I do think that another aspect of it is that um, sometimes doctors don't have the healthiest of lifestyles. And sometimes it's maybe difficult to promote a certain lifestyle if you've not been able to incorporate it into your own life. I, I do think that many doctors starting in college even are, are, are pushed in the direction of overworking mm -hmm. and not sleeping and eating on the run. But the medical training process is terrible for lifestyle. <laughs> and, and, I think, and I think that um, in a way it's going to be cognitively very difficult for doctors on the, on the one hand to, to, you know, do 12 hour, 18 hour shifts, eating a bagel on the run with cream cheese, uh, while at the same time advocating for whole plant diet when they're not doing it. So I, I, I think that um, there, there's a lot of conflicts and internal conflicts as to how, how doctors live their jobs, how medicine is organized. And frankly, the whole industry of healthcare and what hospitals get paid to do, they get paid a lot more for hip replacement than to talk about a whole plant diet. Mm. Well, that's, that's a lot <laughs> right there. That's, that's a lot of obstacles. Um, and, you know, only one, only kind of the idea of like, you know, the pharma, um, you know, their dollars affecting things is even slightly conspiratorial. It's just like, this is human nature. This is the system that we've built. Um, I mean, I'm curious about each of you individually um, in terms like you both seem pretty healthy looking. 
to me, I imagine you guys are, are living to the, to whatever extent the lifestyle that you advocate in the book. How, how hard was that? How hard is it now? Uh, maybe Maya, start, start with you. Med school, like, sure. <laughs> how do you, how do you not survive on, you know, Cheetos, Adderall, and, and Coca-Cola <laughs> and, and cheese, right. cream cheese bagels? Right. It's definitely, um, it's definitely a challenge. Um, like Dr. Gavi was saying, the curriculum is so packed and we learn so much so quickly. Um, I'm spending, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day studying. It doesn't leave a lot of time for, you know, meal planning, working out. Um, but that's also, also life. Life is busy and, you know, it's always challenging to find ways to, you know, adhere to a healthy lifestyle. Um, and that's why it is so important to, you know, take ownership of your health and really, um, recognize that just because, you know, someone else is not telling you what to do, some like a physician is not telling you that this is what you need to be doing. It is important to, you know, take that initiative to look into what's, what is healthy, what is good for you, what makes you feel good, what helps you, you know, have a healthier lifestyle. Um, and I think that's like where that maybe disconnect is from like all this research that we, we found, you know, you know, these hundreds of studies that we read on, um, you know, simple lifestyle changes and how huge of an impact they can have. Um, and just all that wealth of research that, you know, doesn't translate, doesn't get out to the general community. And that's kind of what the goal of our book was to just, not everyone has the time to read so many articles, so many scientific papers. Not everyone has the wherewithal to understand ev everything that's being said in those papers. So this is just, you know, an easy one-stop shop that you can, you can review and just kind of form your own opinion on what works with your lifestyle, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How about you? So, Benny, you came to this a, a while back. Um, what was your lifestyle before you were doing this research? You know, I, I always thought I was eating a healthy lifestyle because I just didn't have the knowledge. I thought that having a bagel and cream cheese was a pretty healthy breakfast, even though, you know, now I know there's very little nutrients in the bagel and the cream cheese. The data for that in terms of health is, you know, not so good. And so, um, but it was gradual. It was over time. Um, it takes time to make lifestyle changes uh, because other parts of our life are, are interwoven. And, and I'm also a um, big believer in maintaining pleasure. And so it takes time to discover new recipes that I can easily incorporate into my life that either maintain the same level of pleasure as previously or even more pleasure. And so, um, you know, I think it's important for people to be kind to themselves, um, accept that it's a process, but also I think, you know, humans, you know, we have to maintain pleasure and, and do things that we enjoy. And, you know, for example, for breakfast this morning, I had a whole grain toast, a delicious heirloom tomato on top of that whole grain toast with a little bit of olive oil and it was delicious, you know, uh, but it took me a while to get to that point. Uh, I also think that our, um, our our tastes evolve over time. And I think that uh, as humans, we don't give ourselves credit for how um, adaptable we are. And, and, um, and so um, I think that's something that is also interesting is that things that I thought I would miss a lot, like pizza or bagel with cream cheese or I don't know what else, uh, I really don't miss them at all. Um, and, and or chocolate, which I, I really don't miss them at all or, or a lot less. And so uh, it's really interesting, um, but it's a gradual process and it's not perfect. Um, I have four kids and they'll be having, you know, their various foods that are not so healthy and I may take a bite here and there mm -hmm. or eat some of their leftovers. So it's not perfect and it doesn't need to be perfect. Um, and, and, but but it's, it's a gradual journey of just incorporating more plants uh, a, a big part of it is planning and just kind of having the right ingredients on hand, trying the new things. It's a journey. But I, I feel great about it. And besides the food tasting really good, when I eat healthy foods, I kind of am also mindful of all of the healthy um, properties of those foods and what it's doing for my body when after I eat those foods. And that's kind of adds an additional sense of joy. Hmm. Nice. Uh, so let's let's talk about prostate cancer, and and my first question is like 
what's is there a definition of prostate cancer? Because it seems like it's a continuum. Like there's always like cancerous cells being formed, and one of the reasons we have more prostate cancer might be, you know, more and more invasive diagnostics. Like is there is there a thresh an agreed upon threshold? Um, like. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to that as a doctor, you know, just because I, I have patients. Um, I think there, there, um, there is a spectrum of prostate cancer. There is a kind of very low grade that's probably not going to cause uh, a life-threatening issue over somebody's lifetime. Mm -hmm. There is kind of more intermediate grades that may require more biopsies or more MRIs. Uh, and then obviously there's more advanced or, or, or aggressive prostate cancer that that requires removal of the prostate gland or, or even, you know, kind of spread to people's body parts and, and cause fatal disease. But I, I, but I think what I will share with you is that even people who have kind of like the low grade prostate cancer still struggle with it. There's still a burden of thinking, Hmm, I may have prostate cancer and um, we're not that good at sorting out low versus intermediate, there's still going to be biopsies, there'll still be MRIs or CT scans. So all forms of prostate cancer form some degree of burden. Um, I do think for certain men, let's say above the age of 80, there's going to be low grade and maybe in that situation, people won't do a biopsy and may leave it alone. But, um, but I think for most men, even the low grade causes uh, a degree of burden. Gotcha. So two, two of the books I've read about prostate cancer have been quite <laughs> sort of anti-mainstream. One of them was Invasion of the Prostate Snatchers, um, as you can tell by the title. Um, and the other one was The Great Prostate Hoax by Richard Ablin, who um, mm. was part of the team that uh, sort of discovered the prostate-specific antigen, PSA, which is used as a, a kind of an early diagnostic. And they were both saying like, basically prostate cancer is not a problem for most people because it grows so slowly that it's not a big deal. And the fast and the quick ones that kill people, there's not much we can do anyway. And I'm wondering, you know, at, at, there was a time when I just sort of accepted that. Your book is I think far more nuanced. And I'm wondering like what, what your response would be to that sort of, um, interpretation of, of that this is like, this is no big deal. And it's just a, a plot by big urology to, to make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, well, it's not true. <laughs> um, it's certainly not true in terms of how um, things are currently occurring, you know, in terms of what patients are currently experiencing. Um, it is a big deal for them because men are getting, are showing up to their doctors with a family history of prostate cancer. They're showing up to their doctor with prostate symptoms. Um, they are having uh, tests which reveal abnormal PSAs. Uh, people know of people who've died from prostate cancer because uh, that's, that's one out of 40, it's not rare. And so um, it's on people's mind um, and I think, uh, if we were, and again, people are not talking about it. I mean, that, that's one of the things about men is that men probably suffer more uh, in private compared to women. I think they're less likely to talk about their private parts. And so I think that's just not the reality of what men are experiencing. Um, I, I don't think society would be served by us completely uh, being blind about prostate cancer and stopping to check for PSAs and things like that. Actually, without getting into too much detail, there was a period of time where the United States Preventative Task Force pulled back on some of recommendations about PSA testing, mm -hmm. but then there, there was actually a rise in prostate cancers and prostate cancer deaths. And so actually uh, it's now reversed and they're mm -hmm. leaning more towards having conversations about uh, PSA testing, and certainly if there are risk factors. So um, I think it's more complicated than that. Um, uh, it definitely affects, it, it's not simply an all or none where um, it's more nuanced. But I do think that um, 
men experience the burden of prostate cancer because I think people do have to kind of work through that. And there may be many times where watchful waiting is an appropriate step, but the watchful waiting and the periodic surveillance still requires, uh, there's a burden to that. Um, and uh, we want people to know that half of that could be you know, eliminated or reduced with simple steps that, by the way, will reduce your chance of having a stroke and a heart attack and you'll feel better and other cancers. We want people to know that information. Right. And part of that, part of that information that we're providing is surveillance. It is, you know, doing those routine checkups because even if it is a low grade prostate cancer, even if it is slow growing, it's important to monitor that because you will start, it, it will grow. It, it's cancer. It's going to continue to, the cells are going to continue to replicate and grow. And keeping tabs on that is really important. You will see more symptoms as prostate cancer progresses. And Dr. Gavi mentioned a lot of the symptoms aren't discussed by men. So it's, it's possible that we're just not hearing these men's stories. Yeah, I also think that uh, if a man knows that he has a low-grade prostate cancer, it's not something they're going to just forget about. Um, it, it, it's something they're going to be thinking about. Um, and so um, I, I think there is a real burden. There's no doubt a burden to this disease. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when, when the American medical mainstream talks about prevention, for a long time they talked about um, testing, right? Like, let's prevent mm -hmm. breast cancer by screening. Let's prevent, right? That's, of course, that's not prevention. Um, it's better than nothing. But when we talk about prevention, first of all, we're talking about people who don't have it yet. And it's very hard to get people to, Right. So for me, like the work I do as a coach, a lot of the prevention stuff is actually sort of halting things like the person's already got diabetes. They already have coronary artery disease. And now we're going to do things either to put them in a holding pattern or depending on what studies or, or um, you know, angiograms you believe some some sort of reversal. Um, let's let's start with people who have who have been diagnosed with prostate cancer. What, like, how much of your book re is relevant at that point? That's a good question. So we, our book is relevant to people who are primary preventing, so people who don't have cancer who are interested in preventing, relevant to people who have been diagnosed with cancer and are interested in, you know, lessening symptoms, lessening progression, and people who have had prostate cancer in the past and are interested in preventing recurrence, so preventing a second occurrence of prostate cancer. It's relevant across the board. A lot of these like findings that we saw, a lot of the studies we read, um, the dietary changes, the, the lifestyle changes are relevant at every level. You know, you could also imagine that it's easier to do studies and show outcome difference in people who already have had prostate cancer mm. or, or have existing prostate cancer to show that it's less likely to advance because it's just shorter time intervals to do those studies. And there are numerous studies in the book that show that the dietary approaches and lifestyle approaches work uh, in reducing a recurrence or slowing down the spread. And so um, it kind of works across the whole spectrum. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering about that. You know, when, when you look at the research, there are so many different sort of artifacts of like how long the study was conducted for, um, how early, right? The earlier it is, the less difference you're going to see because things tend to accelerate as they get, as they get older. Um, like what did you, what's, what are like a couple of like the key takeaways from all the research on, on prostate cancer, like the, the big picture ones? Uh, well, let me, let me paint kind of a broad, uh, take away and I'll let Maya then add to that. Um, I would say that um, the key takeaway points are it's not genetic, <laughs> predetermined. Oh, it's not completely genetically predetermined. Um, and so it's not all in the genes. So, so that, that's one. Um, the other take-home point is that um, there are dozens and dozens, dozens, of, dozens and dozens of studies looking at uh, 
prostate cancer in a variety of ways that demonstrates that lifestyle have an impact. So for example, there are observational trials where people are kind of observed over time. There are also test tube trials where extracts of tomatoes are, are put into dishes, peach, you know, uh, um, test tubes with prostate cancer cells. And you could see how the, the extract from the tomatoes or, uh, or how uh, those factors in the blood that actually after exercise can inhibit cancer cells. So there's kind of test tube data and there's uh, observational studies um, in various countries and various people. And there's just a lot of concordance um, mm. that, um, that, um, that lifestyle has an impact. Um, and um, so I would say, I would say the, 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 the amount of data is just frankly staggering um, that lifestyle has an important impact. I think if you were to talk to, to doctors who practice, you know, who, who understand the data, as much as 80% of healthcare is affected by lifestyle, you know, just putting prostate cancer aside, I think we're estimating prostate cancer, maybe 50%, low end 30%. But in terms of uh, overall, many diseases that I see in a primary care office, up to 80% could be affected by lifestyle. I'll let you add a little bit, Maya. Yeah, so kind of going off um, what was already like mentioned, um, Can you be a little louder? Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Here, let me put my microphone next to my face. Um, oh, very good. Better? Okay. Yeah. So kind of going off what was already mentioned a little bit, our book has a lot of hard facts. It gives a lot of the data raw as we read it. And our goal with that was just to to not spoon feed anyone anything, to not make a conclusion for people. was It was to provide the raw data as it is. And as Dr. Gavi was mentioning, the data tells its own story. The book covers research from the past 30 years, and you really see a narrative forming where time and time again, lifestyle, the choices you make and what you eat, the choices you make and how you exercise really can be a driving factor in whether or not you get prostate cancer. And just speaking to one of my favorite studies from, uh, from, from our book, um, a study in Sweden looked at men who had uh, only exercised for a single hour. So these men had prostate cancer uh, in, in their blood, prostate cancer cells, and they compared their blood, blood's ability to fight the cancer cells before they exercised and after they exercised for a single hour, just one. And they found that the, um, the cancer, the, the body was able to fight the cancer 31% more effectively. That's huge in just one hour of exercise. So imagine what two hours could do. Imagine what, you know, a week's worth can do. So every simple small change you make really has the power to have a huge impact. Mm. And when you say fight the cancer, like wh what are they measuring? <laughs> they were able to stay 31% better. Mm -hmm. Right. I can pull up the study. But basically our body has innate defenses. We have our immune system and there are different levels of that immune system. And our capacity to fight cancer comes in many, many various forms of immunity and their, their body was able to destroy, to cause this, the cancerous cells to basically implode, to, um, to die 31% more effectively. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so just to add granularity, usually they'd be counting cancer cells in the test tube. And so they were able to show that the, the blood after the exercise was able to reduce the cancer cell number by a much greater degree. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So you're really looking at, at sort of very wide strata of data. Um, um, so yeah, one, one of my favorite forms of, of study is in, in very poor regard right now, the ep epidemiology. And I know you have, you have some of that where you say, look, when we look around the world, there are places where there's very little prostate cancer. And they say, well, it's not, it's not a double blind clinical trial. They're like, that's interesting, though, right? Like, isn't that interesting? Doesn't that say something that there's places in the world or heart disease or whatever? There's places in the world where they just basically don't have very much of it. Like, what do you make of that? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, 
you know, these observational trials um, are not perfect, but I think they do, I think they're great at forming theories or hypotheses that we can test. So I think another form of observation trial is looking at the, um, like the blue zones where people live a long time around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, what do they do differently? Um, and so I, I think we could learn from them, but, but, um, but it's not perfect. Um, but I, I think, I think they do provide the kinds of data that would be hard to get otherwise. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think also that, um, randomized control trials aren't perfect either. There have been randomized control trials that produce contradictory results sometimes. So I think this all or none approach, um, is probably not that useful, but I do think there are things that are what's called confounders. In other words, people who eat less dairy may do more yoga. So maybe it's the the yoga, but not the dairy. Uh, and it is hard to control for those variables. Uh, having said that, so I think it is a lifestyle. It's not, you know, one nutrient per se. Uh, I think it is a lifestyle. But I do think that the magnitude of the lifestyle is so big, so different, that I think that even if people can adopt parts of it, it's probably going to be helpful. Right. And speaking to the studies that um, kind of there, speaking to the studies that found that there are areas that have such hugely different prevalences and incidences of prostate cancer compared to the U.S. So we found some areas in in Asia that have up to 50 times less rates of prostate cancer. And then if you look at the people who come from those countries and migrate to the U.S., you can see that their rates of prostate cancer increase after migration. So the idea that it, you know, it could be ethnicity that's causing this, the idea that it could be race that's causing this, like while it could be a factor, it it is shocking how you see these trends in the data of where you're living, what the environment you're part of, how you're choosing to, um, to you know, make up your meals, how that could have an impact. And you can see that as people live in different areas where norms are, are different than ours and then come to America and their rates increase. Yeah. Do their rates increase to match the populations that they're joining? That's a good question. So in the study that we cite um, in chapter one of our book, um, the the rates of the migrant populations increased significantly. I think it was like 100 times, maybe more. They increased significantly, but they didn't even reach the rates of the the people who had, you know, been born and raised in the U.S. So there was a significant increase from, you know, people from from the people who migrated from, you know, before they migrated and it didn't even reach the level of, of Americans, which is kind of scary. Mm. Yeah, Benny, something to add? Yeah, so I, I think that um, when people do migrate here, the trend begins to go up, but they don't quite achieve our rates because, you know, people, when they when the people move to the U.S., they still have parts of their original culture that comes with them in terms of the food choices, the, the life, stress. Uh, things like that. So uh, it's an increase. Uh, you know, I think the observational trial that also are really helpful are the ones looking at longevity, because I think that however you want to look at confounders, the fact that people live longer is a very powerful endpoint. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know that in, in the U.S., uh, our life expectancy is not as long c- compared to other parts of the world. All right. Because it makes me think like, that quote you gave earlier, it's like we're thinking it's maybe 50% is genetic. These migration studies seem to think, seem to suggest that that's too high. That, uh, that it may be less. Um, you, well, uh, it could be. It could be. It could be less, less than that. Uh, uh, you know, this is where, um, you know, it could, it could be less. It could, it, we don't know because, mm-hmm. you know, twins uh, share a lot of the same ecosystem as well. And so yeah. the fact that two twins, there's about a 50% cancer concordance, um, 
they probably shared a lot of the eating habits growing up because <laughs> they grew up, probably grew up in the same home and they probably have similar interests. And so the 50% genetic uh, could easily be an overestimate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, there's, there's, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. You know, but I, I think from as a doctor, you know, whether it's whether genetic is 30% or 50% or 60%, either way, it's, it's a small, it's only a part of the story. And these actions are simple and make a big difference in terms of your lifestyle. So I think, um, I think the, 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 the conclusion is the same is that a significant part of people's health is going to be affected by their lifestyle. And one of the most important things that we do around lifestyle are the chemicals that we introduce into our body by the way of food. Mm. So let's let's talk about food. Um, so your your first food chapter is about veggies, vegetables, and cruciferous vegetables, in particular. So why why did they get pride of place in the uh, in in the fight against prostate cancer? Good question. Cruciferous vegetables are such such warriors. They're so great. Every like study we, go, we looked Mike, at. Uh, we got we got. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah. So so here's here's a little tip. Hold it just below your mouth so that your plosives, the P's and T's don't, uh, okay. they don't pop too much. They don't pop too much. Right. This, okay. That's perfect. Should I start over? Go for, go for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So cruciferous vegetables are really, really warriors of our body. Every study we looked at, you know, there were, there were countless studies just talking about the various benefits of cruciferous vegetables, which include broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, daikon, watercress, so many, so many various vegetables that just have very, very powerful properties that help our body fight cancer. And yeah, cruciferous vegetables um, was one was a heavy hitter. We also have tomatoes, we have soy, green tea. All of these food items and, and drinks contain things called phytochemicals, which are products that plants can make that we can't make in our own bodies that basically help us fight infections, help us fight. Um, bad things for our body. And, and we can't make them ourselves. We need them in our diet. And really these, these vegetables and, and drinks like green tea mm -hmm. are what contain those, those special chemicals. Yeah. yeah. Benny? I guess uh, uh, for cruciferous vegetables, uh, the data is just so strong. I mean, there's, there's no data that I'm aware of that ever showed that uh, they were um, harmful. Uh, maybe there's a study out there that they were neutral, but almost all uniformly positive in terms of their benefit for uh, prostate cancer and other cancers as well. And so they're just a really important part of our diet. Um, they, they probably co-evolved with us as humans, um, and, and they're probably um, historically humans relied, rely, relied on them as an important source of food. Hmm. So I, I don't know if this even matters from your perspective, but I, like I, there's like talk about antioxidants and whether whether they're actually good or bad, and and like so, do you have a sense is is like the stuff the sulforaphane or the glucoraphanins in in like broccoli or broccoli sprouts is that like just harming us a little bit, like in a form of hormesis where where the stress gets our own body going or are they actually delivering nutrients that we need or both? Let me respond to that. I think that it's, um, it's difficult to know. I think um, one of the things we want to be careful about nutrition is being too reductionistic because I don't think we have a really, I think um, a complete understanding of all of the different chemicals and how they work in our body singularly or in combination with other nutrients. Mm. Uh, I think that um, one of the reasons why we talk about whole plants as opposed to let's say supplements is it's about, it's, a, it's probably a, a multiple chemicals working together as a complex orchestra that's really hard to understand. And I think that where historically maybe nutrition fumbled a little bit is they kind of focused on the vitamin C or the vitamin B, and then people took vitamin C, and it's not clear that that made much of a difference. And so I think what we do know is that when these 
plants are ingested as a whole plant, that people do have important health outcomes in terms of living longer, having less heart disease, less strokes, less cancers. And so we've got those hard outcomes. I think there have been interest in trying to get into the kind of details around that. And, and, and sometimes people try to create supplements. Uh, but when we try to be too reductionistic and, and try to overanalyze it and try to separate out the, the, the two or three parts that appear to be the uh, magic formula, the, the good outcomes kind of go away. And so um, I think that um, I think, you know, as humans, we, we want to, you know, try to study and understand. But I think we have um, sometimes fumbled when we try to be too reductionistic about it. It's back to the whole plant. It's back to the whole food, uh, eating food uh, in a kind of original uh, as much as possible in their original uh, formulation as, as nature produced them observationally appears to have the most benefit. Mm. Um, so, so to answer your question, uh, you know, I think in terms of antioxidants, phytochemicals, I think these are best attempts to try to understand what is happening, but we shouldn't be too wedded to those theories. I, I think more important is to look at the hard outcomes of less cancer, less heart disease, longer lifespan. An excellent mm. example of everything Dr. Gavi has been saying is the tomato. So we have lycopene, which we know is a powerful antioxidant in tomatoes, but we have so many studies that show that if you eat the entire tomato, you have a significantly better health benefit than just eating a lycopene supplement. So not mm. eating the, the antioxidant alone is not as powerful as eating the whole tomato. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess part of this is like, you know, we'll we'll see like the blue, this blue zone culture and they'll do all these different things and we're like, well, but give me the 80/20 or give me, you know, I don't, I don't want to do all that or that doesn't seem plausible or what eat vegetables, can I just take a pill? Like there is, you know, there's I think there's both human foible and also the fact that it that medicine is essentially a commerce-driven operation that there's that you know, like, as you were saying at the beginning, all these strikes against lifestyle medicine. Um, I think my observation of observing this kind of work over the last five to 10 years has been that it's more about a lifestyle. I, I think, for example, um, Dr. Ornish's Mediterranean diet has repeatedly shown to uh, produce favorable outcomes, longevity, life expectancy, less cancer, less heart disease. So it's the Mediterranean diet. It's not any one food, just the olive oil, just uh, the whole grains. There is something about the combination. Um, and again, with the blue zones, uh, it, it's something about the combination. It's, it's, it's being around people. It's, it's being outdoors. It's walking. It's um, heating whole grains. And, and so it, it, it it's, um, the best outcomes seem to occur when we're looking at a, a whole lifestyle or a whole diet rather than any particular food or micronutrient. Mm. Yeah, I remember when uh, T. Colin Campbell was first giving book, to book talks about the China study, he, he kept on using the word symphony. And, you know, sort of occurring to me like, you know, why do we like Beethoven's Ninth? It's because it's, it's got a lot of B flats. Let's just let's just extract the B flats, and then we can just we can dispense with the complication and just just enjoy music, right? Um, uh, so so we've got um, the cruciferous and, toma and tomatoes and lycopene, and these I think partly they're just very well studied. So so you were able to find the studies. Chapter four surprised me a little. Soy. Soy is a, a wonderfully um, controversial food. What, what, what made you put soy on the, the, the side of the angels here? Right. So we, we chose to include it in the book partially because of its controversial nature. There's so many questions on is soy good, is soy bad, is soy neutral? And as we were going through the research, we found quite a bit of of studies that had found a positive association between soy, eating soy, and reducing men's risk for prostate cancer. Soy is an excellent source of protein. 
It's high in fiber, folate, calcium, iron, potassium. It's got a, it got a whole bunch of benefits. And it's also a great alternative for some of the potentially harmful foods that you could eat. So red meat, red and processed meats, those have been you know classified by the World Health Organization as independent predictors of prostate cancer. It can cause prostate cancer as carcinogens, which are like foods that can cause cancer. Um, and so when you're having, you know, soy as a replacement for that, that you're, you're getting double benefits, basically. We did find a few studies that um, found soy to have a neutral effect on men's risk for prostate cancer. And those are worth mentioning because they're still, you know, incredibly valid studies. Um, but we didn't find, we, so we found these insignificant studies, which just means that there's a neutral association between prostate cancer and, and men's risk um, for getting it. Uh, so we, we included both. We included, you know, the array of what we found in the research because people, you know, deserve the chance to make their own, their own decisions based on the data that's out there. Yeah, I do think that soy is controversial. Um, and um, I would say that first, our decision to put it in the book really came from the studies. You know, it's what the studies showed. And so therefore, we, we included it because, again, we wanted the studies to speak for themselves. Um, but I think that um, soy in the form of food, um, I'm not aware of any studies that show harm even outside of prostate cancer. I think there there have been some concerns around um, breast cancer, but my understanding, even in that more controversial area, soy in, in countries that consume uh, soy, in, even if in women who've had breast cancer, overall, they're actually doing better. So it's advantageous. Uh, I do think there are concerns about soy because the molecule has some similarities to estrogen. And so I think there would be some concerns if people started, you know, doing a lot of soy or maybe taking supplements of soy or soy extract. And I think that could be harmful potentially. And so it kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier is not focusing on any one form of food or one supplement or, or one chemical, but looking at the symphony. And in communities that have soy as part of their diet, um, they have better health outcomes, less cancer, less heart disease, less breast cancer. And so overall, in those communities, it appears to be beneficial, which is why scientists wanted to study that product in more detail or, or that food group. But overall, it, it, as part of a regular diet, not overdoing it, uh, you know, having it two or three times a week as part of a meal, um, people have improved health outcomes. Gotcha. So, we, so we've got, yeah, all the, you know, the symphony, but we also have like green tea, right? Which is very, is very standalone. Like I just bring in a piccolo. Like what is like green? Tea, it seems crazy. The, the data on green tea is this thing that you, you don't need to change, change anything else. You don't need to become a better person. You don't need to become more peaceful. You don't need to, like just green tea. It seems like such an accessible thing. What, like what, what does the data say? You know, one thing I would say just to preface that for you, it's actually not that surprising in a way because tea is like a, it's like drinking a salad extract. I mean, we're kind of getting back to it's more plants. It's a different form of a plant, and so in some way, it's kind of consistent with the conversations we've had, you know, throughout the morning that it's a different form of having a plant. And, um, um, and then also when people have green tea, they may not have other drinks. Um, mm. But it also may be the case that there are some confounders that people who have um, green tea may be doing, it may lead to people doing other healthy things. Um, so again, I, I don't want to put it as part of a lifestyle, mm. but um, in my mind, it wasn't too surprising because green tea is really... Um, it's really an extract of a plant. Right. But it seems like green tea would be the easiest thing in the world to do a, a clinical trial on. Right. And there, there have been clinical trials and they find kind of like a stepwise association between prostate cancer risk oh. and amount. Oh, oh my goodness. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah. So there have been clinical trials like looking at, you know, green tea consumption and prostate cancer risk. And there's kind of a stepwise association. So the more green tea people are drinking, um, you know, the less risk they have for prostate cancer, for getting prostate cancer. And like Dr. Gavi was saying, you know, there could be confounders here, right? If they're drinking green tea, what are they not drinking? If they're drinking green tea, are they doing it while practicing yoga? Like it, it is part of a lifestyle, but there are these studies that show that there is a significant connection between drinking green tea and having reduced risk. Other beverages, other kinds of tea or particular types of green tea or coffee? Can yeah, so we included one study that kind of compared different kinds of green tea just to see which one did have the greatest benefits. Um, and uh, we found that a certain type of sencha seemed to be the best of the green teas. But again, I think drinking green tea that, you know, starting to do that is the biggest step. You know, once you become a tea guru, then you can get into the specific types and maybe lean towards sencha. Um, but just drinking the green tea in general already makes a huge difference. Yeah, I, I would also add that, um, you know, we try to try, uh, stay close to the science in the book. And there just isn't a lot of science about different types of green tea. The, the tea industry is not, has not historically done a lot of health studies. Maybe that will change in the future. And so we just don't have that level of um, data. I guess my recommendation for people would be to think about incorporating pleasure. And so think about green tea that would bring you pleasure. So there's different types of green teas. And um, so I would um, you know, try to incorporate pleasure, which I think is an important principle. All right. So the one you'll enjoy drinking is, is healthier for you than the one you won't drink. Exactly. Gotcha. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk briefly about what you found about foods to avoid, because this is also tends to be controversial. There's a, you know, there's a whole like, well, everything's fine. There's no bad foods. There's no, it's just moderation. But clearly there's some evidence that some foods are just moving you in the wrong direction. What, what, what classes are there? Right. So we kind of mentioned earlier just the, um, the idea of red and processed meats, which have been, you know, single-handedly defined as carcinogens, you know, foods that can increase your risk of getting cancer. Um, and Dr. Gavi and I both, we're, we're not advocates for cutting anything out of your diet. Again, like Dr. Gavi has been saying this whole time, you know, choosing things that give you pleasure and also are, you know, beneficial health-wise um, is important in taking small steps. So no one's saying, you know, cut any food completely out of your diet, but, um, you know, taking baby steps and making small decisions um, you know, day to day for your health. So yeah, red and processed meats. Um, we also found that high fat dairy products had a significant correlation with prostate cancer risk and specifically like lethal forms of prostate cancer. Um, but that low fat dairy products didn't have that same association. So, you know, transitioning from a high fat dairy product like whole milk to, you know, skim milk already is a great step in the right direction. Yeah, I guess I would also add that um, in terms of foods to avoid or, or foods to reduce is another way to think about it. It does appear that in terms of looking at our overall health, animal-based foods tend to be neutral or harmful depending on the study and depending on the condition. There, there's not a lot of studies that show eating, you know, I don't you know, a meat-heavy diet or an animal um, protein-heavy diet is going to improve people's health outcomes. A lot of the studies are either neutral or harmful. And so I think that um, th there's two reasons to reduce animal-based foods. One is it's probably not that healthy for us. It may create inflammation. The health outcomes just aren't that good. Secondarily, it's an opportunity cost. When you're... Um, choosing to eat less animal-based products than you're eating more plant-based. And so I think it's more about the positive benefit of the plant-based that people should eat or could eat as an alternative to the animal-based uh, foods. But th there are a few studies of eggs that were either um, 
neutral or trended towards harmful. Um, and so that's what the data showed and that's what we shared. Uh, I, I think people are often surprised by that study because many people think eggs are healthy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times things are healthy or unhealthy relative to what else somebody would eat. So perhaps it's better than having pancakes with syrup, <laughs> which have a lot of carbs and can promote weight gain. And so from that point of view, um, eggs could be preferable. But in terms of longevity and prevention of cancer, there are, uh, a plant-based uh, breakfast would be preferable. Mm. Well, that's that's something I worry about when I look at a study and, you know, I I don't have access to the full study. I'm looking at the abstract and like if, if it's industry funded or someone trying to suck up to industry, it's so easy to say, OK, well, we took, you know, we added beef and it's an isocaloric diet, but we took out like what they were eating. It, it, the opportunity cost is not necessarily vegetables. The opportunity cost could be pancakes and syrup, buns, right? Cookies, candies, cakes, crackers. Um, so that like, you know, I imagine Maya, part of your research is going into each study and saying, you know, is this a crock? <laughs> Is, is, was this study done to advance knowledge or was it done to protect an industry? Right. There was a lot of um, critical um, eyes. Mic up. We definitely had a critical eye when choosing the, uh, the studies that we included in the, the book. I read, I mean, Dr. Gavi and I read together probably like 300, 400 articles and choose, chose to only include 100 because of criteria like that, right? We're making sure that the authors are, you know, not having conflicts of interest. We're making sure that, uh, you know, funding behind the studies are, can check out that it's recent data, that it's, you know, valid data. Um, and that's definitely a, a very valid concern. The studies are peer reviewed and published in academic medical journals. And so in order to, to achieve that, there's a threshold of review that has to happen uh, to kind of assure that they're credible articles. And, <coughs> and and many, if not almost all of the articles were done in good medical centers uh, and, and, and published in respected medical journals. And, and so um, we have, um, you know, good faith to believe that, that they're reputable and, and they're large. They often involved hundreds, thousands or tens of thousands of people. Great. So we're, we're at the hour, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. You guys are too busy saving the world for, for, me, for me to be that selfish. Um, the book is called Preventing Prostate Cancer. Um, how can people, well, they can, I, they can find the book anywhere that they find books these days. Um, are, do you have guys have a, a website where people can stay in touch and, and kind of keep up with your research or anything like that? We don't have a website, but we'd both be happy to provide you with our emails. If people want to reach out, we'd be happy to answer questions, anything, anything. Okay, great. I readers. can, I can add, I can add those to the show notes. Um, mm -hmm. but like, so I kind of want to highlight, like a lot of guests come, who come on the show with a book are trying to sell a lot of other stuff, like, you know, their courses and programs. It's, it's like, you guys, this is, this is a, a, a labor of love. Um, so it is, if you, you know, uh, let me just, I mean, for me, it's, um, uh, I'm, I'm a, I work as a faculty at Stanford as a, and, and I have a primary care doctor office for me, it's just a, you know, kind of a giving back. Um, you know, I feel very grateful for my experiences being a doctor. I get so much out of being a doctor and this is, this allows me to kind of doctor the world in a different kind of way. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I really felt this was a sense of mission purpose and felt that this story needed to be told. Mm -hmm. Well, th thank you both for the, the, the work you put into it. Um, so if any, anyone has a prostate or knows anyone with a prostate, it's a, it's a great stocking stuffer, maybe, maybe not traditional. <laughs> but uh... I think this is a especially important book for anyone who has a family history of prostate cancer. Uh, mm. And given that it's one out of eight people, um, that, that's, not, that's pretty common. Uh, and so, um, I think people with a family history of prostate cancer should particularly pay attention and also people who've identified, uh, an elevated, uh, PSA 
or a prostate uh, screening test uh, showed that there was an abnormality, or then um, I think those people uh, should also pay particular attention. I, mm -hmm. I think, and then everyone else as well, just because uh, not only this will benefit, benefit people's prostate, but also their overall health, reduce colon cancer, heart disease, um, dementia, strokes. And so there's so many uh, positive aspects to adopting the lifestyle that we propose. Right. Not only the, are the inputs ho um, holistic and not reductionist, so are the outputs. Yes, exactly. All right. Benny Gavi and Maya Elon, thank you so much for the book and for taking the time today. Our pleasure. For, for your time. All right. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Pleasure. All right. And that's a wrap. So garden news, not much going on. We're enjoying the bounty. Uh, we're getting to the point where, OK, it's January. We've been hoarding sweet potatoes and butternut squash for the winter. And now it's winter's upon us. The uh, between fall and spring is kind of half over. So we got to get more serious about um, making those staples in our diet rather than continually going out and buying other other carbs. Um, movement news, doing my Qigong every morning, and I'm off to Kripalu this weekend for a Qigong intensive with my online teacher, Robert Peng, who's going to become my IRL teacher in real life teacher, uh, hopefully at this workshop. So uh, I hope to come back with lots of new fun and insights. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Bennett, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.